We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Take a look at Mark chapter 12, this text that Charles read to us. Let me begin with this. It's been my experience, just observation, that after a person gets saved, a lot of times there's a little, um, a little lapse that they kind of, things all come together for them. When they, as Paul would say in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. That before a person gives themselves completely to Christ the Savior, they come to grips with the mercies, plural, of God. They understand the grace of God and they respond out of grace not out of, if I don't do this, he won't love me, but they respond out of grace to give themselves fully. And I think that in watching people all over these years that have come to Christ, that there are two things they have to come to grips with once they get saved. And the, the first is the nature of that cross. To understand that they were in Adam physically going to die. They um, spiritually were dead to God. They didn't seek him. That they, in their righteousness, had nothing they could do to change their sinful state. There is none righteous, no, not one. That in the noetic, the mental, that comes to grips with the truth of God, that they were hardened to it. In their will, they were alien. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul said in Colossians, that they were uh, subject to every evil deed, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that physically and mentally and spiritually and noetically and judicially that they were dead and that that gap between them and God would not be breached by them. They were not going to come. You could preach the gospel to them and to us forever and we would not ever see our need of it. That's who we were, called children of the devil. Amen. Just look at the guy next to you. There was a child of the devil right there. And that's what we were. And then they have to understand that the reason that got, gap got breached was that God would send his son and the life that we had to live, he would live for us, the death that he must be paid, he did. And we did it, he did it while we were all laughing at him. And we didn't care that he did. And he had to, with efficacious grace, touch our hearts and open our minds and draw us to himself. Uh, he had to give us a freed will that we could choose him. And then he would convert us and seal us and pledge himself to us and promise to raise us from the dead. That it was a complete act of the power and the wisdom and the grace of God. And that's what a man, a woman has to understand before they're going to start to really grow as a Christian. And it's like the old sci-fi movies where the guy is looking at a portrait of somebody and he thinks it's a beautiful portrait and he keeps looking at it. And then there's a day that this portrait looks back at him 
The portrait comes to life. Don't email me, okay? It comes to life, and he makes contact, and all of a sudden that portrait draws him into an altogether new universe he's never seen. Old sci-fi motif. And that's kind of what the gospel is. You keep looking at Jesus. You do your Christmas, your Easter's, your crosses, your, and then one day he looks back and you realize how amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a rich like Steve. <laughs> no, like me, like me. And there just comes a time. And then the other thing that has to happen is that a Christian has to understand, having been saved, why has God left him here? And he has to see himself, herself, in the continuity of history. That God took Abraham, gave promises, a nation came from him, went to Egypt, got redeemed by seen the movie? Charlton Heston comes and takes them out. It's Moses. Okay. And Moses takes them out and through the wilderness. And then God, Joshua settles them in the land. They rebel. The prophets rise up to call them back. They resist him and resist him until his son comes and they crucify him. And God sets aside Israel in darkness and now turns to the Gentiles and the thing called the church, and they see themselves until the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the kingdom, and to where a Christian sees himself. This is where I am between the cross and the crown and the return. I'm in that little intercalation, they call it, of God's purposes, where he proclaims his message through me, a priest and a king like all the Christians until Christ comes to fulfill his purposes with Israel. And so I am left here to bear fruit, to live truthfully, distinctly, to preach, to disciple, to warn the world that he's coming and to be light and salt in my day. And so when a Christian comes to see in the continuity of history, that's who I am and that's where I am and that's why God left me here. Are you with me? Christians have to, somehow, the, the portrait has to look back and their eyes have to open up as to the decree of God and where they are. This is who I am. If someone were to say to me, could you teach a text on that second point about what on earth God is doing for heaven's sake? I would say, turn to Mark 12 and I'm going to show you. There's no way a human could have written this. There's no way. Christ is going to take you through approximately 4,000 years and 12 sentences, believe it or not. It's a survey of the entirety of the Bible from Genesis 12 all the way to the book of Revelation. Watch this. In verse 1, the context of chapter 12 is death. Jesus came on the triumphal entry to a nation that was dead in their temple false worship. He came to a group of leaders that said, by whose authority do you do these things? And rejected him. The leaders are dead. The nation is dead. And to illustrate it, he took a fig tree and say, may no one eat fruit from you again. 
and it was dead from the roots up. Dead tree, dead nation, dead leaders. That's the context. And now Jesus in chapter 12 is going to show them this is what is going to follow. This nation is dead, its leaders are dead, and like this tree, they're about to be cursed and the roots up. What's God going to be doing until then? Has he forgotten about us? What's he going to do in the meantime? He says, take notes. Once upon a time, when Jesus says once upon a time, you're in trouble, okay? Because he's about to give a story and you're about to be the hero or the villain. And so he's going to tell them a story. He says, a man, he began to speak to them in parables and said, a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under it, the vine, a wine press, built a tower, rented it to vine growers, went on a journey. That's called the cast, the casting. Here are the actors in the parable. Who is the man that owns the vineyard, owns the land, and calls all the workers accountable to him? It is God. Uh, the vineyard, often in the Bible, Israel is spoken of as a vineyard. Abraham is spoken of as a vine from whence life would go out. Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11, the, a rebellious world that would go out like milkweed to form the nations and bring in gods instead of the true God. And in answer to it, God would raise up a miracle nation with Abram, the exalted father, and then he would change his name to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And so here is this man who has the knowledge of God. In you shall the nations be blessed. He is a fruitful vine. And in Psalm 80, it says God takes Israel out of Egypt like a vine, and he transplants them in his land. And he gives them the law of God. In other words, the law of God is a, uh, a wall around it and a tower. It gives the next nation protection. He gives them the law whereby they can live and be fruitful and blessed. And so he dug a vat under the wine press. And he wants the nation like wine to be a blessing. Don't email me. But he wants the wine to be a blessing. If you're Baptist, just sit easy. Okay. And so we're starting the casting here. God, the owner. Israel, the fruitful vine that he will take and plant in the land. Israel is spoken of in Psalm 80, in Isaiah 5, in Ezekiel 17, and in the book of Hosea as a fruitful vine. Okay? Well, he rented it to vine growers. Who are the vine growers? These are the guys that they, they don't own the vineyard. They don't own the land. God does. But God puts them as stewards to be a blessing to the people and to be accountable to God uh, to know that he is in charge. They are the mediators between the landowner and the, and the, the people. Who are the people? Well, it's the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. Uh, that's who they are, uh, the workers of the nation, the priest. And so we've got God, we've got the people, we've got the law, and we've got the workers. And then it says that he went on a journey. We have time. There's going to be a time period when he puts this nation in the ground 
until he comes to call the nation to repentance. And in verse 2, at the harvest time, he sent a slave that there comes a time that he wants this nation to be what he intended them to be. Abraham, in you shall the nations be blessed. It is said that the great contribution of the Jew to all of history is that they had the ability to teach man to think antithetically. That that is good, that is bad, that is righteous, that is sin. They gave the nations the ability to have what is called a sacral uh, authority. That there has to be in every nation a recognition that beyond matter and material, there is a sacred realm of in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth and God made man in his own image. And God said, don't rebel. God said, if you do, you will die. God said, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. I'll be the savior. Now, when you have a nation that has nothing but man and nothing above it, that is a little bit of hell. And so the Jew gave to the nations the only feasible sacred order of an infinite personal God who is one, but is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is unity and diversity. He is moral, he is good, and he is God. And so because of Israel, that man can have a reason for being seen. Okay? And so there came a time that he says, Israel, I want you to flourish. If you were going to take a nation and have one nation in the earth that is called the kingdom of priests, where would you put them? You know where I'd put them? I'd put them dead center in the earth, wouldn't you? That's why the book of Ezekiel calls Israel, the land, the navel of the earth. It's called the holy land. And Israel is called the chosen people. And so if you'll take all the continents on your map and push them all together, look at what is dead center. It is Israel. See, if we were Christians and did it, we would put us in like Auckland in the south or in the North Pole, far away from everybody, the holy huddle, okay? But God puts them dead center in the world. As a matter of fact, when we took a trip over there, I found out that the greatest aviary bird pathway of migration is Israel. That, you, that every bird migratory bird in the Middle East at some point will come over the land of Israel. I don't know if that's true, but it's a great illustration. <laughs> okay. And so at harvest time, he sends a slave, pony up, divvy up. It's time for accountability. Who are the slaves? They are the servants of God, beginning with Elijah, then Elisha, then Amos and Hosea in the north, Micah, Isaiah in the south, then Jonah in the north, then Joel in the south, and then uh, who else we got? Then Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, and then they go into exile. We're going to send them Ezekiel and Daniel. Then when they come back, we'll give them Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. 
Those are the prophets. And they are called by God, quote, my servants, the prophets. And they will handle the word of God. And so here they come, calling the nation to the authority of God. And so, in verse 2, to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. I want you to acknowledge that you have acknowledged me, the people, and you have been a blessing to them. Uh, the Apostle Peter says in his day of the New Testament elders to shepherd the church of God's heritage. They're not yours, they're God's. And so in verse three, what do they do? They took him and beat him and send him away empty-handed. You remember in Matthew 23? Woe to you, O Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those sent to her. And so they beat him. They, they said, as in the parable that Jesus told, I will not have this man reign over us. I will not submit to him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Now, if you ran a business and you sent your chief executive officer to them and said, I need an accounting, and they beat him and sent him away, how many of you would send another? You probably wouldn't. It would be such an indignation. But this is amazing. He sent another slave. Him they wounded in the head and treated him shamefully. What would you do? Would your Old Testament be this thick of the patience of God? You would have had fire come down and consume them. Well, verse 5, he sent another. And that one, they go a little further. They killed. The more patient the landowner is, the more violent and abusive these leaders become. And so with many others, beating some, killing others. You know, I have a buddy named Ray, and he and his wife, Sylvia, when they got saved, they would read the Bible to each other at night. There and their little boy, Kurt. And Ray said they were reading through Genesis, Exodus, through the history of Israel. And it, at one point, his wife, Sylvia, said, how long before they learn this? that they keep rebelling against Moses and Aaron and the prophets and David and all the way down. They keep doing this. How long does it take a people to understand? Well, there it is in verse 5, killing others. Now, 1 through 5, if you want to put a note by it, it's all the past. It's all really Genesis through Malachi. It's the past. But now in verse 6, and he had one more to send. This is his last word to the nation. And who is it in verse 6? A beloved son. You tell me, who is the last word of God to Israel? Jesus. See if this verse rings true with you. God who spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in this last day has spoken to us and his son. This is it. 
Anybody know what book that's from? Hebrews to the Jews. This is it. You and I as Gentiles didn't have a bunch of prophets coming to us as native-born Finns and Swedes and Africans and Asians. We didn't have anybody come to us and said, you know, Jesus is coming. The Jew did. All we had were apostles to say he's come. And so in verse 6, he has one more, meaning that there's nobody after Christ. This is it. He had one more to send, a beloved son, as in John 3.16. And he sent him last of all. This is it. Saying, they will respect my son. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is it. Beyond Christ, Spurgeon said, even God can't go. You can't do better than God in the flesh. And in verse 6, they will respect my son because God is thinking rationally. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Hadn't you ever preached the gospel to loved ones and thought, Obviously, they're going to respond. Nobody can turn away from this, but they could. And so in verse 7, the vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Question, did the leaders of Israel know this is him? Yeah, he fulfills prophecy. He raises the dead. He cast out demons. He cast out disease. He can raise the dead. He can control nature. He walks on water, commands the winds, who accuses me of sin? John the Baptist, this is him. Spirit descends, this is him. You remember where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you have come to us from God as a teacher. No one can do the works you do unless God is with him. So did Israel know who he was? Yeah. When you walk on water, that's always a tip. That's always a tip. When you rise from the dead, that's always a tip off. You know what they did? They paid Roman guards to lie and say it didn't happen. What are you going to do? And so this is the heir, meaning everything's coming to this begotten son, the Messiah, the son of David. He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is him. Whenever Godzilla knocks on your door, it's good to yield to him. Because if he's indignant, he will consume you. And you were thinking, certainly they will cons they'll submit to this man. Let us kill him. They plot, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. In other words, they're motivated by power and they're motivated by money. Can that ever affect people? Only always, okay. And the vine grower said, let's kill him. And so we have gone from the past now we're in the present, and Jesus has brought you right up to his feet. If you were listening to this as someone that is just being clued in, the hair is coming up on the back of your neck because you're thinking, I'm sitting in the nexus, N-E-X-U-S. I'm sitting in the, the uh, homecoming of the universe right here how they will treat this final word. 
this is the heir, and let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You ever notice how optimistic sinners are? The inheritance will be ours. Oh, really? In verse 8, they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. We have now moved from the present to the future. They're going to kill me and throw me out of the vineyard because when you executed a man in Israel, you took him outside the gates because he's unclean. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. He's outside the gate. Hebrews chapter 13, let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the camp. Here is the sin offering. And they threw him out of the vineyard. They took Christ. They led him out of the city. They took him to the hill of the skull. And there they crucified him. Just like Jesus said they would four days prior. In verse 9, he answers, asks a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Meaning, if you were God, what would you do? Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet calling you to acknowledge the one who gave you your existence, your land, your law, and your purpose. And now he calls you in his son, showing you mercy after sin over and over and over and over and over again. What will they do? He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And in the gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees answered themselves and said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and give the vineyard to others. It's interesting that sometimes an unbeliever can stand outside the person or the personability of the data and predict what should happen without ever seeing themselves in jeopardy. And that's what they did. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Christ now echoes their statement. He will come and destroy the vine growers. Question, after Jesus was crucified in 33 AD approximately, what happened in 70 AD? The destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus said, uh, the disciples, when he came out of the temple just days earlier, I'm sorry, a couple of days later, and they're going to say, Master, do you behold these beautiful buildings and the great votive gifts? And he said, not one stone will be left upon another. It's coming down. In the book of Deuteronomy 27, 28, in the book of Leviticus 26, God to the old generation, Leviticus, the new generation, Deuteronomy, tells them that when they violate the law, the very last thing that is going to happen in judgment is they will be removed from the land. I'm going to take back my blessing. And so that's about to happen. It's like in this parable of darkness, there's one bright light, and that is the truth of Christ. And so he says he's going to destroy the, the vine growers, and that happened in 70 A.D., Titus Vespasian came through with the Roman legion in an uprising that went against them, led by the zealots and the like of them, 
and he dest they destroyed Jerusalem. Then he destroyed a city called Masada and took the Jews, destroyed the wall, destroyed the houses, destroyed the temple. Uh, and then he uh, sent the people into exile and they remained alien in the land until the earliest 20th century. For 2,000 years, they were outside of the land. If Christ is not the Son of God, somebody needs to tell God because something made him real mad. Okay, a 20-year strike on them. And so, are you with me so far? He's taking you step by step through history. He began with the richness of Abraham, the vine, and then to Exodus, taking them out of the land to the conquest, putting them in the land. That's in approximately 2000 BC, Abraham. He took you from 2000 BC all the way to the present, and now he is moving you into the future. And he's doing it without taking a breath, without a cue card, because he is God. And he's going to verse 9, give the vineyard to others. Who are the others that he is going to take the privilege of being God's children to be a blessing to the world, and he's going to give it to them? Question, who are them? It is Yuns. It's Usens. We have now moved from 70 A.D., through the next 20 centuries. There you are. So by verse 9, just write the word, me, not me, but you, me, okay? There's you. Uh, you've heard me say it before. In Texas, where high school football is a cult, okay, it is so important. You have the greatest of athletes, high school athletes, that are called blue chips. Everybody wants them. And once they're given scholarships, you have walk-ons that are called cow chips. Okay. I was a cow chip. Okay. Actually, I was a blue chip that was essentially a cow chip. All right. Whenever you have a blue chip that gets full of himself and won't play because he's so smart, he can't take coaching, you sit him down. Who do you put in his place? Cow chip. Who was the blue chip nation? Israel. They wouldn't serve. God set them down. In their place, he put a nation of idiots. <laughs> Who were the idiots? <laughs> You're looking at them. No, that's a bad thing. So look around. <laughs> Do you all see yourself? Here you are. He knew you, what are we singing in one of our hymns? He loved me ere I knew him. You were in the mind of God before you were born. I want to show you something. If you know your Bible, you go, I've heard this. Yes, you have. Whenever God gave the law of God to the next generation in Deuteronomy, he said, you guys aren't going to keep this, and it's going to hit the fan. And I want you to learn this song and I want you to sing it so that you can always remember that God remembers you. 
It's called the Song of Moses, and it's in Deuteronomy 32. Let's take six hours here and take a look at it. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Just before the book of Joshua and we head into the land, he says, I want you guys to teach this to your kids. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 3, I proclaim the name of Yahweh. This is who he is. He says, uh, oh, let's see. If you'll look down at verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, that was the Tower of Babel. The Gentiles, the, well, at that time there was nothing but Gentiles. They went out and they settled throughout the earth, 70 different nations through which came the nations. It's you and I. You can trace all genealogies back to uh, the Tower of Babel, to Shem, Ham, and Japheth that went out from there. And he says, when he gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. He gave them all the places of the world. But he left a place right in the middle that he promised to the sons of Abraham. And it's called uh, Israel. And so God had Israel in mind. That's why whenever they're going on the Exodus journey and they pass through the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, that God says, don't lift a finger against them. Don't go through their land. And if you do, ask their permission. If you drink water, pay for it. It's not yours. It's theirs. But when it comes across the Jordan, this is now the, what do we call that land? Promised. This is yours. And these guys, he said to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, you're someday going to return here after four generations and remove the Canaanites because their iniquity is not quite yet complete. This is the wickedest people there are. They are perverse. They're bestiality. They're into child sacrifice. They're into incest. They're into perversion. Every sort of evil they're doing. And we're going to wipe them like the hand of God off of the earth. And it's going to send a message to the entire world of what I think about sin and evil. And so, in verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his inheritance. No other nation can say we have our origin by a barren woman having a child at year 90. No nation can say that. Only one. We're the chosen people. And in verse 10, he found him in a desert land. Egypt. He encircled him and cared for him. That's when they're led forth by Moses. Like an eagle that stirs up the nest and hovers over its young, he spread his wings and he caught them. That's when Moses takes them out. 12, the Lord guided him. That's the wilderness journey. 13, he made him ride on the high places. He was a victor. That's the conquest of the land under Joshua, God is moving you through the Old Testament that has yet to occur. You dig? He's not looking at history. This hasn't occurred yet. And in verse 13, he ate the produce of the field. This is the bounty of the land and milk and honey that settles in the land. Curds of cows, milk of the flock. Verse 15, 
we have now moved through the settling in the land under David and under uh, Solomon. And in verse 15, the blue chip, Jeshurun, which is God's pet name for Israel. It means little upright one. Would somebody please have a kid and name them Jeshurun so I can dedicate them. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Is it possible for a young child to get spoiled and lose his sense of need? Yes. He forsook God who made him. We're now in the times of the kings and the northern kingdom and the southern in rebellion. And in verse 16, they made God jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, who came lately. These theological systems that Israel embraced had nothing to do with reality. It's simply because the nations around them did them. You know why Israel fell into it? Because there was no moral boundaries. I could do anything I wanted to do. And in verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 19, this is called the exile. They were sent into Babylon that was taken over by Persia, taken over by Greece, taken over by Rome. They began the times of the Gentiles. They were ruled by them. 19, the Lord saw this and he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I'll hide my face from them and I'll see what their end shall be. I'm gonna preach this to Congress whenever I get invited. Can God judge a nation by simply removing himself? Yeah, there's no sacred order now. Now, what is man? Nothing. What is morality? Nothing. Can you leave your keys on the dash when you go to bed? No. Can you lock your door? Yes. I'm going to take away law and order because you remove me. See, Adam always wants to reject God but still stay in the Garden of Eden. And God says, no. You reject me, you reject my blessings. And it's a hard road to hoe. And so... It's like Wenton Marsalis said, life has a board forever behind. When you don't want God, life will discipline you. Ask any college freshman. Okay. And in verse 21, they made me jealous with what is not God. They provoked me to anger with their idols. So I'll make them jealous by those who are not a people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, if you got a cross-reference in your Bible, you're going to see Romans 10 and Romans 11. This is one of Paul's verses. Question, who is the foolish nation that God is going to make Israel jealous by? It's you. Israel's going to look and see the blessing of God on these Gentiles and say, why are y'all so blessed? Because of our great God, Jehovah. Well, he was our God. Well, thank you kindly. Y'all didn't want him. We took him. And we found the Messiah. Well, that's promised to us. Thank you kindly. You didn't want him. We took him. And we have the law written on our heart. Well, that's a promise to us. You didn't want it. We got the new covenant. And we got the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's promised to us. Thank you. We got it. Thank you, blue chips. I'm going to start a church called Couch Up Bible. <laughs> I really am. 
You know what Israel calls us in the Old Testament? They called us the dogs. The dogs. They had no sense of clean and unclean. Just nasty. I'm going to start a church called the Kennel. You know, they all got a lot of churches today named after nouns, you know. The well, the bridge, the water. I'm going to call it the kennel. Because that's what we are. Paul quotes this. And that's you. See also Jesus. Mark 12. This is the acorn. Jesus is the oak. He waters it and he brings it to fruition. This is you. God saw you in 1500 B.C. Actually, with uh, Abraham, in you shall the nations be blessed. In your seed, singular. whole book of the Bible is written on that singularity, book of Galatians. He does not say seeds, referring to many, rather to one and to your seed. Are we all here indebted to one particular Jew? Yeah. This is what Jesus is talking about. And then for the rest of the text, he looks at what is going to happen to Israel. They're going to go into captivity, and yet God's going to remember them, and he's going to return someday. And then Paul, at the end of chapter 32, is going to say to the Gentiles, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. If you're smart, right now you'll believe in the God of Israel. It's a glorious text. Incidentally, this is why in the book of Revelation, the final judgment is in Revelation 16, the seven bowls of judgment. In Revelation 15, it's a scene in heaven, and everybody's singing something. You know what they're singing? The song of Moses. God is going to remember his people. And so go back here to Mark chapter 12. He is going to destroy the vineyard or the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. Now we're in the church age. And in verse 10, have you not read this scripture that this is prophesied? The stone. Who is the stone that the builders rejected? Jesus. The builders, Pharisees, Sanhedrin rejected Calvary became the chief stone. Is God able to take an instrument of slow death and execution and turn it into the foundation of heaven? See, if you're here from way out of state, you might say, what is that thing that's on the top of your church? It's right here. The church is built around it. That's where you kill somebody in the most painful way you can. And in Israel, you did it so it would be a sign that he was an enemy of God. And that is the center of our church. If Jesus died today, hypothetically, you might have a 30-06 for a firing squad. You might have a needle for a lethal injection. You might have a hangman's noose. That would be a clever marketing deal right there. Somebody needs to invent a crucifix that's really a hangman's noose. And people say, what is that? And you flip it over and there's a cross. Give me 10%. Okay. Because they would say, that's the most grotesque thing I've ever seen. Yeah, you ought to see the cross. A noose, you die quickly. The cross, you die over six hours. And that's what God did to him. That became the center of life? Yes, it did. 
just like Samson could take the jawbone of an ass, death, and say, this is the instrument of victory. And so who did it at the end of verse 11? This came about from, what's the last two words of that line? The Lord. Who was behind the death of Christ? Judas. Nope. Israel. Nope. Sanhedrin. Nope. Who was behind it? The Romans that drove the nails? Nope. Pilate that found him innocent six times and condemned him? No. The Sanhedrin that sent him to his death? No. Who was the activity behind the cross? It was God. Whom God foreknew and predestined, you crucified by the hands of wicked men. Simon Peter to the Sanhedrin. This was God's will. It's a miracle. And that's why we sit in the middle of this miracle. How horrid what happened to Joseph. He becomes the savior of Israel. How horrid in what happened to David. He becomes the savior of Israel. How horrid what happened to Christ. He becomes the savior of Israel. David and Joseph got to dodge the bullet. They were just symbols. Jesus, he was the real deal. And so, it states in the book of uh, Matthew, chapter 21, it goes like this. The kingdom is taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit. In what sense was the kingdom taken from Israel and given to us? The kingdom is not fulfilled in us, but it begins in us. It will be fulfilled when Christ returns. The kingdom means the king God gave him to us. It means the new covenant he gave it to us. By the gift of the Holy Spirit, he gave it to us. The privilege of being priests and kings, he gave it to us. And the great commission of going to the entire world, you shall be my witness to all the nations, he gave to us. And so, who are we? Where are we in this 4,000-year sweep, there's where we are. And that is why God has left you here, to, to learn of the king in opposition to the world, to live as saints in opposition to the world, to preach in opposition to the world, to teach them to obey all I have taught you, discipleship, to show the world a better way, and to warn the world like Noah. It looks peaceful right now. But I've read ahead, and it's not. You need to rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people right now. Uh, and we need to suffer. Amen? The world is never going to be soft toward us. No nation will embrace a people whose belief system condemns them. Even if we offer salvation, that's the portal to salvation is honesty. And so that's our duty. That's who we are. God didn't leave you here to make a bunch of money. In heaven, it's called asphalt, golden streets. God left you here for the king. And in verse, uh, I want to show you something. Flip over to your left to Matthew chapter 21. Because after the church age and the blessing of redemption proclaimed to the world, I want to ask you a question. Is that the end of your Bible? Is our preaching the gospel? Oh, no. 
Revelation shows what's going to happen once we're gone. And in chapter 21 of Matthew, end of the chapter, verse 43, there you are. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the cow chips, producing the fruit of it. We produce fruit. Mark 12, 1, like the leaders wouldn't do and the nation wouldn't do. We do. Verse 44, he that falls on this stone, he's a warning. You fall on this stone. Whenever the, the New Testament uses that, well, I'm sorry, the Old Testament uses that verse. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief corner. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that is always used in reference to Israel. That the nation that was built on self-righteousness, erroneously, but saw the law as rungs to get to heaven. Whenever the gospel came, they were offended at the stone. They stumbled on him in their pursuit of God. You want to find God? Yes, come this way. What's that? That's a cross. Admit that that should be yours. It was somebody else, and you take the gift from him. I'm insulted. What are you saying I am? Depraved. You're a sinner. I'm insulted. How many of you got saved and went back to a self righteous family and friends. And you said to them, I'm a child of God. Why? I trusted Christ. Well, I've kept the law. No, you're not a child of God. You're a child of uh, the devil. If you would like to be a child of God, renounce your works and trust in Christ. Is that received well? No. Well, Jesus said, you stumble on this stone and you will be broken to pieces. Now that's used to Israel. Often in the Bible, whenever you see a term of execution, it is said that Solomon commanded Benaiah to fall on Adonijah and Absalom fell upon Abnon. And Benaiah fell upon uh, Shammai. It's a term of execution. You fall on this stone. That's always in reference to Israel. You execute this man. And your nation will be broken to pieces. I will take your nation, break you up, and I will send you to Krakow. I will send you to Kiev. To Moscow. Y'all ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Where all the new communists want all the Jews out of Russia. Y'all know what happened in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue? Ferdinand and Isabella demanded all the Jews leave Spain. And then they were commanded to leave Great Britain. And they were broken into pieces and sent through all the world. And so we have moved now from 70 AD through the church age uh, to what is going to happen to Israel for the next 20 centuries. They will be broken to pieces. But at the end of verse 44, but on whom whoever it falls, the stone, 
It will scatter him like dust. Now, if you know your Bibles right here, you went, I remember that. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision of the Gentiles' dominion of Israel that would begin with the Babylonian captivity, and then Persia would take over Babylon, Greece would take over Persia, Rome would take over Greece, the church age would go out into the nations until the end of time in Revelation, where there will be 10 nations gathered together as a world empire. And whenever Nebuchadnezzar sees that vision that shook him up so, he sees this statue of a man, a head of gold, arms of silver, chest, I mean, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, ten toes of iron and clay. And those were the nations. Babylon, Persia, Greece, the two legs of Rome, Rome and Constantinople, east and west. And then the revived Roman Empire of Revelation under Antichrist. And he sees it in a glance. And then he sees something, a stone cut without hands. It's not of human doing. Comes from the mountain of God and smashes the statue. He doesn't hit the head or the chest or the belly or the legs. He hits the final kingdom, the ten toes gathered against God, a kingdom yet to come. You're not going to see it. You're going to be gone. Everybody say hallelujah. Yeah. And he's going to come and hit the statue. And you know what it says the statue becomes? Like dust in the wind. Jesus said, you fall on this stone, you're about to have a bad day. But if this stone falls on you, you're going to have a worse day. Because I'm going to come back someday. Did this text talk about Jesus dying, rising, and saving? Yes. But now it talks about him coming back. And so he has moved from beyond the church age to the second coming and the final judgment. So where have we gone? Abraham, Exodus, conquest, flourishing in the land, prophets, rejection, Jesus' death, Israel destroyed, separated to the four winds, the foolish nation becoming God's people, and the second coming. He's moved you through 4,000 years and 12 sentences. Do you see where you are? You're between the cross and the crown while the ark is being built and it's nice and peaceful. And you're telling people, you better get in the ark. Amen? You better get in this ark. Beyond that purpose of life, you can't go. There's nothing else you can do that is any greater than that. And so, as I said at the beginning, for a Christian to take off, he got to understand what God did for him and now where he is in history. Stay with me. I have a gadget. My wife and I, our kids gave it to us. It's called a Roku. Does anybody else have a, Steve, you got a Roku? Well, you better get one if you're going to stay up <laughs> techie people. And I can take it, and I can watch stuff from the 50s. 
And my wife and I will go out to East Texas to, we live in her parents' house out there. Sometimes our parents passed away, we have that house. And so we just go out there and sit in the quiet of birds, bees, meth labs, and just <laughs> don't email me. All right, we just, it's just quiet. Whenever you see a double wide with a nine foot security fence, <laughs> something's not happening right out there. But we'll go out and just, it's great, you know, just, we just enjoy the time. And we'll watch Gunsmoke, Wanted Dead or Alive, Steve McQueen, and that eternal favorite, Hazel. Never mind, okay. And I discovered, because they made it in the 50s and ended in the early 60s when I was in junior high. And now I discovered watching Alfred Hitchcock. Anybody with me? And whenever you watch TV, I know it's 25 after, but you got nowhere to go right now. COVID everywhere, you know, just stay right here. When, you, when I watch TV, and I grew up on it, black and white, TV. There's TV, 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 Alfred Hitchcock. You can tell this was a great Hollywood director that they gave 30 minutes to. And it's great because he appears at the beginning and the ending of every episode, and he's hilarious. And uh, the, the acting is great, the lighting, the sets, outdoor scenes, the scripts, I mean, it will hold you. You ever watch TV and just feel kind of insulted sometimes, you know? Well, you're watching this, and he messes with your mind. He, the white hat doesn't always win in his deals. Evil can win. You're never, you're kind of scared watching it. You're not sure what'll happen, okay? And it's masterful. And there's so often, there's a surprise ending and you don't see it coming, okay? And so we started watching a 1955 you know, 55 version, and then we're, we're now in 1960, so we're thinking our way through Alfred Hitchcock. And earlier when we would watch the deal and the surprise ending, you know, Teresa and her recliner, and this is where you die when you get older, we're in our recliner. Ah! You could hear us, you know. <laughs> now I can see it I see it coming you know what's going to happen what this woman writing the letters to the guy in prison and he's going to come and kill her and he loves the woman he's falling in love with her it's not the girl writing them it's her ugly aunt that's writing them oh yeah there's no girl that's the aunt we keep watching, bingo, I nailed it. <laughs> and I've been doing that time after time after time. So that Teresa's kind of looking at me now. What's with you? And I tell her, I'm being possessed. <laughs> Alfred has taken over. I spend time with Alfred. I'm being mentored by Alfred. I have Alfred's mind, I have Alfred's heart. I see like Alfred. <laughs> Pass the butter. <laughs> That's what the Bible does to you. 
when you spend time with God and his word, what everybody's trembling about out there, we know exactly what's coming. We see it. We know what's coming. Do you know, you remember when the movie came out, if you're an old guy, Psycho? When the movie came out, before when you would go in to see it, you had to sign a paper that you wouldn't sue Alfred Hitchcock if you died of fright. That's always a good marketing technique. And whenever you would get up and watch the movie, a guy would come up and he would say, we would ask you, you have never seen a movie like this ever in your life, and we would ask you to help us by telling no one the ending. Because if you know the ending, all the suspense is gone. Because now you know that Anthony Hopkins is his own mother. <laughs> okay, I just told you the movie. And so don't tell anyone. And they would release you after the movie through the back doors. They wouldn't let you talk to anybody else. Great marketing technique. And the reason they didn't want you to is because if you gave away the last two minutes, all the suspense was gone. That's the Bible. Everybody's scared to death about what's happening. We're not. You know why? We got the Bible. We see what Satan's doing, did, what God did, is doing, and will do. We see how it ends. And so, we just watch it <laughs> with popcorn. Amen? Until next week, good night. <laughs> Pray with me. Father in heaven, if there is one guy or one girl that is living in a world of perversion and COVID and communism and China and Afghanistan and Russia and men's hearts fainting through fear, bring them to the rock of ages to the Savior who can scan 40 centuries in a blink and tell us what God is going to do. So, the dead tree, the dead people, the dead leaders, what will follow? Answer, us. And we will announce to the world what he did and what he's going to do. This very day might you bring them to the saving knowledge and might none of us in here give up the sacred duty we have been offered for the things of this world. And we'll ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.